0: Hey, what a great song to close with uh, in that opening set of worship where we, we just cried out. That's our prayer, is that God would open the eyes of our heart. That is really resonates with what Paul is praying for the church in this letter, the book of Ephesians. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles in front of you, I hope you do. We'd like for you to bring them on Sunday mornings. Open to the book of Ephesians. We just started studying this book last week, and we are still in chapter 1. And we're going to spend today looking at the last half of chapter 1 and examining this prayer that the Apostle Paul has for the church, the church in Ephesus, the church at large, the church here this morning in the Delaware County, that that God would open the eyes of our heart. We'll talk more about that as we go through this. I love this revelation of of, um, this idea of just having a veil removed from you suddenly. You know, when, when things are revealed. I, when I do weddings, I love to be there at the front of the, of the church. Sometimes I'll be standing right here or right up here on the stage. And those doors back there open and a bride walks in the room. And I love whenever she walks into the room, the first thing I like to do is look over at the groom and the, the emotion that is reflected in his face is oftentimes just overwhelming to see this revelation of this bride suddenly revealed, especially when they keep the traditions, you know, of not seeing her up to that point and all. And it's just a marvelous experience. I've shared a story with you in the past about, uh, at least some of you, living in, in California. I lived in the Sacramento Valley. My wife and I were married in Southern California, and then we relocated and and really established our life together in the Sacramento Valley of of Central California. And there was uh, a weather pattern that would would set in in the Sacramento Valley in the wintertime. Usually there was great weather there, but there was a period of time in the winter, and, and one winter in particular, where for 28 days we lived in a very thick fog, you know, there's the Sierra Nevada mountains to the to the east, and then the coastal mountains to the west, and it forms this big valley, the, the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valley in the heart of California. And this these patterns could get locked into this valley there, and for 28 days, nothing but fog. You could look up, and sometimes you could almost just barely see the sun trying to break through the clouds, Never see, hardly ever see any tinge of blue. And when you looked out on a clear day, you might see a, a hundred yards, the length of a football field. Oftentimes in the morning, you'd be lucky if you could see to the end of your hood. And the temperature would, would get, the high temperature would be about 40 degrees, and the low temperature would be about 37 degrees. Just this narrow band of this very oppressive weather. And I remember with this one year, we were heading down to my in-laws. Kristen grew up in, in Huntington Beach, which is on the other side of, of Los Angeles, about an eight-hour drive from Sacramento. And it requires about a usually about a four-and-a-half-hour passage through this big valley. And then you go up over this, the, what they call the Tehachapi Mountains there. And finally, you get up out of the valley and then down through around the mountains and down into Los Angeles and beyond. Well, on this particular trip, We were, what would normally have taken four to five hours was taking more like six or seven hours because of the fog, the whole length of this valley. Now, we've been in this fog for 28 days. And as we're getting ready to go up over the mountains, you get into some pretty remote area there. And I said, well, I better get some gas. So we're starting to head up the mountain. It says last exit, you know, for the next 40 or 50 miles or whatever. And I planned on pulling off there. And as we're heading up to that exit, it was like we were in an airplane, we're gaining altitude, coming out of the valley. It was like being in an airplane lifting off in a city that's in a, a cloud bank, and like you broke through the clouds in the car, it felt like you were taking off. And we, we broke through the clouds, and all of a sudden, I mean, it was it was mesmerizing. The, the, no sooner did we break through the clouds, the gas station exit was right there. I pulled over, I parked the car, I didn't even turn it off, I just opened the door, I left the door open, I got out, and I was walking around like this, and I could see the moon was rising over the Sierra Nevada mountains. You could see the mountains breaking through the clouds on this side and mountains breaking through the clouds on this side under a moonlit sky, and the stars, and just, it looked like on top of this fog bank you could see forever, and then the heavens just opened up. And I remember the gas station attendant, like one of those Goomer piles type of guys, and he was walking over, kind of wiping his hands and sticking the rag in his pocket. And he goes, well, I guess you're from down in the valley. <laughs> I said, how did you know? He goes, you all have that same reaction. <laughs> well, in this letter, Paul, as we get into this prayer that begins in chapter 15, he is praying that our, the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that we would be lifted out of the fog bank and that we would see all the divine wisdom and power and glory and splendor that God has for us as his creation in Christ, this called people. Paul's prayer is for a sudden unveiling of divine wisdom, That the eyes of our heart would be open. And Paul prays for the church to know three things. The first one being the the hope of God's calling. The hope of God's calling. Now I'm going to read. I'm going to start in verse 15. I'll read this down through here. And then we'll break this down as we look at these three specific things that Paul is looking for us to understand. Verse 15, chapter 1. Therefore, I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul says, I therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you want to ask, hey, what's it there for? Now, Paul, he tells us what it's there for. He says, listen, I've heard. Refer in verses 13, 14, and 15 there. He goes, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I've heard of your love for the saints. In other words, it's clear that the, the, the truth of the gospel has taken root in you, that you are a called people, that you've, you've, you've accepted this work that Christ has done for you. And therefore, I pray for you. I pray for you. That, look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you The spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now we we teach from the New King James here and I love the translation. I like a different rendering in this particular verse. The New American Standard uses it. The NIV uses it. But where it says the eyes of your understanding, right there in the margin, write the eyes of your heart. That, the, that, the, that God would reveal himself, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, be opened. The eyes of your heart. So the Bible talks about a lot of different senses to understand God. That we can taste God and see, right? That he's sweet as honey. We can taste him. We can grope for him and, and feel him. We can hear his voice. We can see him. And all these different senses come together in this place that the Bible talks about, that the the Hebrews talked about, much more so than the Greeks, but the Hebrews specifically talked about this existence in what they refer to as the heart. Where our spirit and mind come together, this, this place where God lives in us, the essence of who we are as spiritual beings. That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that they'd be opened that you may know, and here's, here's the list, what is the hope of his calling? That's number one. Number two, what are the riches of his inheritance? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? And we'll break these down, the hope of his calling, the rich of our inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of God's power. His power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the age that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So Paul prays that we would have divine wisdom, that the hearts of our that our eyes of our heart would be opened, that we might know the hope of his calling, the hope of his calling. Now hope here is not like we typically use the word hope. You know, we, we hope that it, you know, that it might not rain before we cut the grass. Or we hope that it doesn't snow before I have to go to work tomorrow. Or kids hope that it does snow so they don't have to go to school tomorrow. But hope in the, in the Bible, in this context here, is not something that we're hoping takes place. It's rather the promise that it has taken place and it's already been given to us. Biblical hope is resting in the fulfilled Promises of God see God consistently demonstrates through his word that he 's faithful to fulfill all that he says. He, consider, he lays it out, he speaks of the future events, and then he fulfills those future events, and he documents not only the fact that they would take place but that they have taken place, so that He builds a court case, if you will, a, a record that that establishes that when he says something's going to happen. Look at the evidence. He does what he says. So we have a hope for the future that it is solidified, it's guaranteed. Look in this passage alone, the beautiful gospel message that's contained in this passage that we just read. A thousand years before this book was written, God would record exactly what would take place in Christ's life. Let's look at just a few of them here this morning, just to remind us, just a few of the messianic prophecies that David wrote for us, fulfilled and and given evidence here as Paul's writing to the church. In Psalm 16, verse 10, talking about the resurrection, he said, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of the fact that Christ would be resurrected, Jesus on his last few days, would say, you can tear this down, this, this, this temple down, but I will rebuild it in three days. In Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I love the imagery there. Speaking of the fact that Christ would have dominion, that he would finish the work and sit on high in a place of authority fulfilled through the life of Christ testified here by Paul and then in Psalm 8 verse 6 he says you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet that he would have dominion over all things both now and into the future over every kingdom over all dominions and specifically over the church we'll talk about that more God's word consistently, consistently reminds us of a future hope. Of the promise that we walk in. We have the hope of salvation. It is a promise of salvation. But what does it look like specifically, this this knowledge of the hope of our calling? What practical impact does it have for us in our life today? Well, Paul sums it up very clearly in an observation here in verse 15. The witness that's been already given by the church in Ephesus that he planted. You can read about his, the, the birth of this church in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20. But Paul in verse 15 there says, listen, I've heard of your faith in Jesus. And I've heard of your love for one another. The love for the saints. I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your love. Faith and love. This is the evidence that the church had in fact been called. And this is the hope of our calling. This is what Paul is calling us to live in. Writing to the church in Corinth, Paul reminds them, and this is a passage that everyone in here is familiar. If you've been to a Christian wedding or several Christian weddings, you've probably at some time in your life heard the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the passage on describing what is love. And at the end of that passage, he sums it all up in verse 13, and he says, abide. In other words, reside in, live in, encamp there. Abide in faith, abide in hope, and abide in love. All three of them, remain in all three of those. But, Paul says, the greatest of these is love. The New Testament letters written by Paul and the other authors, James and Peter and John, especially John, they come together to produce an instructional manual in love. How we are to love one another, our relationship with each other. In other words... Knowing our calling means above all other things. And listen, I get asked this. Pastors are always asked, Pastor, I need to set up an appointment to talk to you about how I understand the calling in my life. And I I know that we preach on that. We teach on that. I want to talk to people about that. But please hear this. More than anything else, please know what our calling is. That it's to love one another. And that every day, every moment of every day, there's an opportunity to live that out. Whether it's with the spouse that we reside with, or maybe our elderly parents that we're caring for, or our children that we're raising, or a neighbor that we don't like. No matter what it is, we're called to live out. My, my, my workmates, my classmates, my teammates, to live this calling out. This is the greatest calling. Listen, I want, to have, I want you to see what the plan is for God. That God has in your life. Paul is going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians talking about what we do with this knowledge, how we walk it out. So there's a lot more of this to come in the weeks ahead. However, most importantly, we are called to love one another. The Apostle John put it this way We know, in 1 John chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, how do you know you've been born again? Well, you know that because we love each other. Then he goes on, and this is difficult. He says, he who does not love, you remain in death. You abide in death. So that there's no escaping this. This is evidence of a changed life. On the last night of his life, Jesus Christ, sitting at what we refer to as the Lord's table, the Last Supper. He had girded himself, taken off his clothes, girded himself, and picked up a basin and towel. He had washed the feet of his disciples, becoming the least among them, the position of a slave. That's already taken place. Trying to give them living examples, but then he sits at the table and he says, Listen, guys, here's how the world will know that you are my disciples that you love one another. Now, a very important footnote to all this, this call to love, is the interesting fact that just a few decades after this letter is penned to the church in Ephesus, there would be another letter penned by the Apostle John as the Holy Spirit gave him a revelation Of things to come, the end times. And in that letter, in in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, Take a letter (laughs) to the church in Ephesus. Here's what I want you to tell them. To the church in Ephesus, to this church. He says, Listen, you have sound doctrine. You have great teaching. You defend the truth well. You have good programs. Your activities within the church are amazing. You look like you're wearing yourself out. But, but, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now, that's a warning. That we, the church, need to take very seriously. Now the second thing that Paul prays here in this prayer of revelation for the church is that we would have understanding of the riches of our inheritance. The riches of our inheritance. The New Testament, from from beginning to end, of, of what we have as the newer testament of the Bible teaches consistently that when a person enters into salvation, when they are born again, when they have a new spiritual birth, that with, that with that birth, they are granted everything in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches consistently. As a result, there's no need, nor is there any justification in searching for anything more than that. However, many Christians today spend a great deal of time and energy and resources vainly looking for blessings that are already available to them. And we, this is very quickly where, where people get down rabbit trails and into bad places following men and women who are saying, I have special insight. I have new revelation. I have ways that you can attain higher enlightenment. And it's all a bunch of bunk. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about the gifting of his spirit to bring revelation to you in just a moment here. But please know there's no one more special than you than this. Yeah, there's gifts, there's gifts of teaching, there's gifts of prophecy, there's gifts of helps, there's gifts of compassion. There are gifts that make us work together as an organization. Someone might be able to open a passage of scripture for you and give you insight through a gift of teaching. It's not because they have any more special relationship with you than than you with, with Christ. That's a dangerous view that we can have. Listen, we we grope around looking for answers without seriously searching God's word, which is overflowing with wisdom and with light. James himself says that you, you don't have because you don't ask. And he's speaking specifically in the context of wisdom. That if you ask, it will be granted to you. So we, we run around looking for things without ever sitting and really seriously reading the word of God prayerfully that he would speak to us with wisdom from it. We act like we lack strength. When Philippians 4.13 tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We act like we lack love but Romans 5.5 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through Christ Jesus. We act like we lack grace, but 2 Corinthians twelve nine tells us that His grace has been given to us, and it's sufficient for us. I love that word, sufficient. Would you rather have a checking account that had a million dollars in it, or a checking account that had sufficient funds to cash any check? Sufficient. That's what you have in grace. You can't overdraft. Your bank account of grace, it's sufficient. But unless we're in the word being reminded of that, we're going to live life like we don't have that. These are the riches of our inheritance. They are documented for us. This is the inventory. It's in the scriptures. It reminds us. We act like we lack peace. But yet Philippians 4, 7 tells us that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. Our problem is not a lack of blessing, but rather a lack of understanding and a lack of wisdom. That's why Paul is praying that our eyes of our heart would be open to take hold of our inheritance and to distribute it to the world in which we live. Our inheritance is so rich, our blessings are so vast that the human mind can't comprehend them. That's really what the issue is. These are, Paul says that it's unfathomable in in Romans. He's trying to describe the glories of God. He says, ah, forget it, my paraphrase. It's too deep. You You can't understand it. It's way, way, way over your head. But listen, the Holy Spirit can himself, only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can search the deep things in the mind of God. And only the Holy Spirit can bring them into the context that we can understand. So the good news that we need to be reminded of, and that's what Paul's praying for, that's what the revelation is that he's praying for, the good news is that this tutor, this helper, he lives within us. And this is his, one of his primary roles. Listen to this amazing promise from Jesus Christ. Again, referring to that same night, the, the last night of his life. John chapter 14 this time. He says this in verses 16, 17, and 18. I, and I pray. I pray the Father. In other words, I beg the Father. I, I beseech the Father. And he will give you another helper. That he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, speaking of Christ at that time, and will be in you. Jesus looks at them and says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Go down a little bit more in that same Discourse, And Jesus says this, John 14, 25 and 26. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, talks more about this. He says, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, deep things of God. For what man can know the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? In other words, you can't know somebody else. You can only know what's in you. Paul says only God, the the Spirit, can know what's in God the Father. Now we have received, Paul says, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might know that the things that we have freely been given to us by God. This is the promise that we have. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And I know that you know this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's been a time in your life when you finally surrendered And through that new birth, the Spirit was given to you and the Spirit brought insight to you. I can testify to this in my own life. I remember, I'm the last of three boys and my nearest brother is eight years older. My oldest brother is 11 years older. So there was a point in time where they, one went off to college and one went off to the army and I was left home. And I asked my parents if I could move out of the closet that they thought was a bedroom into my brother's bedroom that they shared. And they said, sure, go ahead. And I moved in there, and on my bedside table, which was my brother's bedside table, there were two Bibles there. They were confirmation Bibles that my brothers had received. And they had left them there. And I picked them up, and and I knew that there was something special about the Bible. And I would try to start reading it, and it was as if it was in German. German. I knew that there was, there was language in there that was directly from Christ and it was in, it was in red. Like if it was a red letter edition Bible. So if you, if you were reading the red stuff, you were going right to the source. And that's where I would focus. And it made no difference. It might as well have been in German. It didn't make sense to me. Now about ten years later from that period of time... I realized that I was lost, that I needed, that I I never, I grew up in the church, but I never understood the gospel. And finally, at around 22 years old, it clicked for me. And I asked God to save me. And then I started reading the Bible again. And it's as if somebody translated it from German into English. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gave me the ability to start seeing things that I had never seen before. Before it's as if scales came from my eyes paul talked about that type of revelation when he was encountered by the living christ on the road to damascus and and he was and he was blinded and he had to live in that blindness and there was witness that came to him and finally The revelation cleared and and Paul was given his sight back. He said it's as if scales fell from his eyes. And all of a sudden Paul understood who Christ was. That he was the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit began to bring Paul into learnings. And he would go into exile where he would study. And all of this would come together for him. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Today bringing remembrance teaching you of the things of god that only he can do one of the great hopes and promises the great treasures that we have lastly paul's prayer is that we would have knowledge of the exceeding greatness of god's power in an effort to express this greatness in verse 19 of ephesians chapter 1 Paul, again, is just grasping to use language, and the Greek language was even more full in its ability to convey thought than our language, the English language. But he is struggling to put into words the greatness of God's power. In verse 19, he uses Four different Greek synonyms for power. In in English, they're rendered for here in our our text as power, working, strength, and might. Also from the Greek, in English, we would get different derivatives of those words. You might get a word like dynamite or dynamo or energy or dominion. Paul is struggling to, to, to help us understand how amazing this power is. We throw that word awesome around. I've talked about that before. Here you can use it. His power is awesome. Again, Paul's prayer is is, is not that the power be given to us. He's not praying that this power would come upon you. He's saying, listen, this power is yours. This is the power that you live in. This is the power that you've been chosen into. You can't be given something that's already yours. That'd be like me walking into your house. If you own your house and own the deed, that'd be, as, that'd be as foolish as me walking in there and saying, hey, I really like your house. I want to give it to you. No, it's yours. Paul says, listen, this power is yours. He wants to give us an understanding of what it is. And this power, what is it done? Power, Paul uses three. Incredible events to try to get us to comprehend the the, the awesomeness of this power. Number one, it's raised Christ from the dead. What is this power, verse 19? What is this exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Verse 20, he worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power to resurrect The power to overcome the grave. Number two, it's the power that seated Christ at God's right hand and brought all things under his authority. Raised him from the dead, verse 20, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. I don't know about you, but in today's day and age, as I look at the headlines, I am very thankful for that. He's in control. All things are under his authority. He establishes kings and kingdoms. And then lastly, Paul explains this power as the power to establish Christ as the head of the church, the fullness of his body. And that's where it interacts with you and I the most. That Jesus Christ would be the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. That he would be the head of the church. That we would be his body on earth to prove out, to be a testimony to the fact that he lives. Thomas, in that upper room, after the resurrected Christ came to visit him, he would not believe that that was Jesus Christ in the room until he could go and he could touch the resurrected body, that he could put his fingers in the scar, that he could touch it and see it and see that it was real, And then he believed. Christ is the head of of you and me, the church. We are the resurrected body. We should be the witness. We are called to be the witness. We are called to be the physical manifestation, the fact that Christ is alive on this earth, that the world around us see it, see him rather in us. God's power is ours to witness to the lost. God's power is ours to endure the suffering of persecution that comes as a follower of Christ. God's power is ours to accomplish his will. The resurrected Christ, up from the grave, up out of the tomb, He lives among his followers to establish the record, the credibility of his resurrection, appearing strategically to certain people for a period of time. And then in Acts chapter 1, it's recorded of his ascension into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples just before ascending into heaven from which we now wait for his return. And he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, talking about what would happen at Pentecost, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power to make him known. We live in that power. His power resurrected him. His power seated him in heaven. His power put all things in dominion below him. His power establishes him as the head of the church. That's the power that we live in. We should live our lives like that power is real. I was reading one author. They said that, you know, when people come into church, if, if we really believed that, they would give you a crash helmet and a seat belt to lash you to your seat. And we would pray that God would restrain his power. But instead, that same author says, instead, we, we go to church like we're going into a chemistry lab at, at 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 high school and whipping up a little batch of TNT and a little test tube for it to go poof. Do we believe it? Do we are we living that? If we truly live that out, we won't have to go up to people and say, Hey, would you would, would you be saved? They would come to us and say, Hey, would you please tell me how to be saved? I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. And as they get set up, I just want to jump ahead a little bit in the book of Ephesians and close this morning with a doxology that Paul offers again as he gets all worked up in this, in, in trying to convey this amazing power that we live in. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to read this passage from Ephesians to you one more time this morning. And I'm going to read it this time from the message. And I want you just to drink in the words of this translation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. That's why, when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus, and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus... I could not stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and I'd give thanks. But I do more than thank. I asked. I asked the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. Your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what is his calling to you. To grasp the immensity of his glorious way of life that he has for his followers. Oh, the other extravagance of his work. In us who trust him, the endless energy, the boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and he set him on a throne deep in heaven. In charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name, no power is exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all. He's the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Father, we believe this this morning, God. Make this real in our lives this morning, Jesus. God, that we walk out here in the hope of your calling, living in the power of your resurrection. Lord, be glorified in the church, I pray. Amen.